as Russian troops capture a key Ukrainian city to dwindling supplies of ammunition, threatened Kyiv's hold on the 620-mile front line under assault. This was one of the fiercest fight for this particular city, and a lot of people compare it to Bakhmut as well, also in, in the Donetsk region, but a lot of Ukrainian military gave their lives, and even more of the Russian soldiers died. Plus, Alexei Navalny's widow vows to carry on his fight for a free Russia. And later in the program, our rescue group is working to bring back Ukrainian children who have been taken to Russia. Today is Monday, February 19th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Rick Pantaleo. Russia says it has claimed the eastern Ukraine city of Avdivka after Ukrainian forces withdrew Saturday following daily Russian onslaughts from three directions. The withdrawal of Ukrainian soldiers from the heavily fortified town handed Russia its biggest victory since the Battle of Bakhmut last year. The Biden administration linked the loss of Avdivka to congressional inaction on military aid for Ukraine. For more on the situation on the ground, I spoke with Anna Chernikova in Kyiv. Ukrainian military officials say that Ukrainians will continue to defend this area of Ukraine, but from other positions, which are a little farther back from Avdiivka. This was one of the fiercest fight for this particular city, and a lot of people compare it to Bakhmut as well, also in, in the Donetsk region, but a lot of Ukrainian military gave their lives, and even more of the Russian soldiers died in the battle for Avdiivka. President Zelensky, during his speech at the Munich Security Conference, said that there are seven times more of the Russian troops who died in Avdiivka, comparing to Ukrainian troops, and it was also important institute for the study of war in their latest report said that Ukrainians had to withdraw from Avdiivka due to the lack of ammunition and lack of support from the allies, particularly saying that the delay in, for instance, U.S. support is causing such troubles. Can you please give us an update from the front? Yes, President Zelensky announced on Monday that he is visiting another area in the Eastern Front Line, which is one of the active directions at this point. I should probably mention here also that Russian forces at the same time at three different locations, two locations in the Eastern Front Line, which is one of those of Divka, another is Kupiansk, which is in the Kharkiv region, and also in the Parisia region. So President Zelensky is visiting one of the positions at the Eastern Front Line, and he came there to with his own eyes what the situation is in there and to support Ukrainian soldiers and to give awards as well to some of the Ukrainian soldiers. Anna, finally, Saturday the 24th marks the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Do you know if there are any official ceremonies planned to mark the occasion? Definitely an important date in Ukrainian modern history. And at this point, there is no particularly publicly announced confirmation and confirmed visits. However, there is information that some officials might come to Kyiv. There are talks about certain European officials, but we will probably can get some more details closer to the date. Anna Chernikova, thank you so much for the update. 
Thank you. Since Alexei Navalny's death, hundreds of people have been detained in Russia while paying tribute to the opposition leader. He died in custody at an Arctic penal colony late last week. Western leaders blame Russia. VOA's Arash Arabasadi has more. In St. Petersburg, men removed flowers from a makeshift memorial honoring dead Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Almost immediately, new flowers took their place. Just one day earlier, police detained mourners for laying flowers in Navalny's honor. Independent Russian media and human rights group OVD Info reported no fewer than 400 detentions at events across some 32 cities after news of Navalny's death broke late last week. Navalny had been a longtime critic, broadly, of the Kremlin and specifically of Russian President Vladimir Putin. In December 2020, he accused Russia's security agency, the FSB, of poisoning him with a confirmed Russian-made nerve agent. Russia officially blames Navalny's death on an undisclosed illness at the Arctic penal colony where he was serving a 19-year sentence. Western leaders aren't buying it. Make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Putin is responsible. And as protesters left flowers and notes near the Russian embassy in London, people in Moscow did the same, calling Navalny a hero who fought for freedom. Arash Arabasadi, VOA News. Putin убил не просто человека Алексея Навального, он вместе с ним захотел убить наши надежды, нашу свободу. Yulia Navalnaya, widow of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, said in a video message on Monday that she would continue the work of her husband and fight for a free Russia. The sudden death of Vladimir Putin's most formidable critic has left an open wound in Russia's political opposition. VOA's Lori London asked Clark University professor and scholar of Russian politics Valerie Sperling about Navalny's legacy and how his wife's voice might carry that forward. I think where I would start is just to say how sadly predictable his death is. Um, we know that Putin's regime has never tolerated serious opposition, and Navalny's death is unfortunately one of a growing number of political assassinations that's been carried out by the regime. Uh, Navalny's impact has been extraordinary. He's he's had an extraordinary and outsized impact on Russian politics and in the broader society as well and even globally. And in terms of his legacy, he was he was consistently really creative as a political activist. In his early anti-corruption work, you know, he started with the innovative technique of shareholder activism where he would purchase small numbers of shares and major companies with government contracts so that he would then be able to access their annual reports and other documents that made it easier to show where corruption and embezzlement were happening. And then later, when the technology evolved, he innovated by posting his video exposés on YouTube about Medvedev's many properties and Putin's lavish palace and the incredible corruption that funded those kinds of things. And also thinking about his legacy in politics, he was also innovative in mobilizing people around elections. He coined the uh, the key phrase, the party of crooks and 
and Thieves to describe United Russia in December 2011. And that moniker has really stuck around. And I think he was the first in Russia to broadly use social media to get people to come out for those rallies in December 2011 and afterwards objecting to the election fraud. And then in 2013, when he ran for mayor of Moscow, he used, I think for Russia, pretty innovative techniques of grassroots fundraising and organizing. He had tons of volunteers handing out leaflets on street corners. And then again, in 2019, he innovated that smart vote system that enabled voters in the uh, in the Moscow City Duma elections to find out which opposition party they should support in their district in order to be most likely to defeat the United Russia candidate. And finally, in terms of impact, I would say he was also really daring in his activism. I'm particularly fond of his gutsy impersonation of an FSB official in a phone call he made to Konstantin Kudryavtsev, who was one of the men on the team that carried out the assassination attempt on Navalny and the cleanup of it uh, afterwards and in 2020 (laughs) yeah where you know Navalny gets the guy to explain how they carried out the poisoning what part of the underwear they put the Novichok on why the operation failed and and I and I think he's just been really influential in his leadership and his persistence in organizing and protesting. You know, he inspired people to listen to their conscience and to protest against the corruption and repression of the regime. You remember when he came back to Russia in 2021 after recovering from that poisoning and he was arrested, there were protests across the country. And even now, despite hundreds of arrests, people are coming out to mark his death by leaving mementos and flowers and memorials, you know, to show that they can't be intimidated, like he couldn't be intimidated. What happens to the movement without this type of just larger than life leader? His wife, Yulia, is saying she will continue the fight mm-hmm. for a free Russia. What do you yeah. think that says? You know, unfortunately, a number of the people who could step into his shoes are already in jail. Um, like Vladimir Karamurza and and others are already dead. I would think that Navalny's death in conjunction, you know, with the killing of Prigozhin and others, I would think that the bodies stacking up would convince potential opposition leaders to do their work from outside of the country. Although, of course, there's also transnational repression to deal with. And the problem with being an opposition leader from outside the country is that, you know, there's an authenticity issue. There's a representativeness issue. You know, how well does the person really represent Russia if they're not there? And there's even, I would say, you know, a masculinity issue, by which I mean, one of the striking things about Navalny is that he decided to go back to Russia. And that bravery and courage that he exhibited is often read as manliness, you know, so it might be hard for an opposition politician, or maybe especially a male opposition politician to organize from abroad without being seen as, you know, insufficiently tough to take Putin on. Now, you mentioned Yulia Navalny, and I had wondered whether she might now take on a more significant political opposition role. Although Navalny had said in the past that she didn't intend to go in that direction. Yesterday in her remarks, she said the main thing we can do for Alexei and ourselves is to keep fighting. And I think by saying that, she's leaving the door open to step into that kind of role without actually making, you know, a political promise to do so. But, you know, I think it's also important to remember when asking the question who could step into his shoes, that a lot of people could step into those shoes simultaneously. 
obviously. There are millions of Russians who watched his videos, who are outraged at the Russian government and its corruption and its repression and its violence and the war, utterly needless, senseless, brutal war against Ukraine. And that is, of course, what Putin's government is most afraid of, right? Not of one Navalny or one Navalnaya, but of millions of people acting on their desire for freedom. He must be afraid because he keeps allegedly killing all the people that oppose him. And this was already a person in prison in Siberia. I No, I think you're right, because, of course, you know, the missing piece in a scenario where you would have a mobilization of millions of people is a charismatic leader. And so that's one of the reasons, I think, why it was so important to Putin and to his regime, even though Navalny was in jail for the foreseeable future, you know, and then moved, you know, yet further and further away. I think it's that fear of a charismatic leader that led Putin to go that final step. Is it possible that taking out Navalny could actually have the opposite effect of what Putin wanted and just inspire people more? It's an interesting proposition. I think that there's been so much malfeasance by the regime, you know, including starting the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, that if we were going to see mass protests against the regime, there have already been a number of opportunities for that where we didn't see mass mobilization. I'm not sure that the death of Navalny would be enough to bring that many people out in the street in defiance of the regime when the regime has been so violent and so repressive against protesters. You know, there have even been arrests just in the last, you know, few days of people who have simply gone out with flowers to lay them at memorials. So I think the regime might need to crumble a bit before we see that kind of mass mobilization. Um, I was going. I was going to say the other thing is that Navalny's popularity, I think, is not what it was in say 2021 when he came back to Russia and released the video about Putin's palace. You know, at that point, his name was on everyone's lips, and I do think that unfortunately the regime was somewhat successful by jailing him and keeping him in prison and restricting his access to the public um, and reducing the number of people who are familiar with him. And I think they've also done the smear campaign that they are trying to do with many people. I just thought it was very notable, though, that the lines in all those cities across Russia with people paying their It struck me. It is striking. It, it also speaks maybe to the sort of latent desire, the latent discontent in a lot of people in Russia. I think you could see the same thing in the numbers of people that lined up to sign the petitions to put Boris Nadezhdin on the ballot to run for president against Putin. It's the same idea that there are a lot of people who are very frustrated with the regime who are willing to come out for what look like low-risk opportunities to voice their dissent. And back to Yulia, would it be unusual for, and what would be the challenges if Yulia does decide to really take over that movement for her husband? Would there be further challenges for her as a woman? I think the challenges are not, I mean, in some ways it might be easier, you know, for her as as a as a woman to take, to take that on because I think there is maybe additional sympathy for women just because we live in a patriarchal society where women are supposedly you know, weak and are supposed to play a more private role. I think there's maybe sometimes greater enthusiasm, you know, to see women stepping up into a political and dangerous positions. 
and she's very smart and appealing and I think charismatic in her own right. So it will be interesting to watch. Clark University professor Valerie Sperling, a scholar of Russian politics. You're listening to Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Rick Pantaleo. Concern is growing in Europe about the future U.S. commitment to NATO should Donald Trump return to office. With a war in Ukraine weighing on resources, European leaders agree that they should do more without relying on U.S. for help. VOA's Lori London spoke with Guntram Wolf, director of the German Council on Foreign Relations, starting with reaction to Trump's comments. Well, I mean, the reaction is, first of all, a reaction that I'm not surprised, and second of all, a reaction that I think it's really not a very good moment to weaken the alliance. We are in an alliance. We want the United States to be a strong partner to Europe. European countries have been major allies to the United States, including after the 9-11 attacks where the United States invoked the NATO clause for assistance and European countries, of course, did help the United States to fight terrorism. And so it is really quite unfortunate that we are now at a point where this alliance looks weakened. It's at a moment where the security situation in Europe is extraordinarily fragile. How are European leaders viewing the future for a potential second Trump presidency and what would that mean for Europe? Well, the second U.S. presidency by Trump, um, by Donald Trump, could mean significant changes in Europe. Already during the first Trump presidency, European countries moved closer together. They strengthened their strategic autonomy. They started collaborating. They set up first baby steps in joint armed procurement. And I think the uh, second Trump presidency would accelerate many of those things. And it would mean the European Union would try to to really invest into its own security to a much larger, larger extent than before. Our own defense spending has already gone up. Germany, the country from where I'm calling right now, is actually now meeting the 2% NATO target in defense spending, which I think is very, very important, irrespective of who's in the White House. Uh, so we will do many things that are really necessary. Um, the big difference will be without the United States, we will have to not only do it without the US support, we will have to to do some things much more quickly and we will have to invest into strategic abilities that currently only the United States provides to the European Union um, and you know that's the challenging part of um, a Trump presidency relative to a Biden presidency. Right and he's already indicated that he would end U.S. support for Ukraine which obviously would have a great impact and concern across Europe. How would Europe prepare for that or how is it preparing? Well, let me first say it would be a huge mistake uh, to abandon Ukraine at this moment. Ukraine has been a reliable um, partner. Uh, Ukraine has f uh, shown its formidable capacity uh, to defend itself and to uh, really uh, weaken Russia. And um, frankly speaking, it's been a really great bargain for US um, taxpayers and European taxpayers uh, to support Ukraine uh, because 
because it um, weakened one of our principal adversaries um, very substantially at relatively low costs. So we should continue to support Ukraine. And of course, if the United States was not to do that anymore, then the European Union, which already pays twice as much as the United States, uh, will be forced to do more and will be forced to do more in particular when it comes to uh, military support and not just financial support. You know, the United States and its European allies have for many years had this very solid transatlantic relationship. What would it mean for Europe if that relationship shifted to having Russia as an ally. It, it, there's been many indications that a Trump presidency would be very in line with Russia. Well, I think the transatlantic alliance between Western and Central Europe and the United States is a very strong alliance. We share values and the United States and Western Europe fundamentally share the values of democracy, um, of believing in the freedom and uh, the fr in our economic model is also aligned. So I very much hope that uh, these fundamental principles of respect for the individual, respect for democracy, respect for a market economy, will remain um, in the United States um, even during a Trump presidency. But you are right that um, President Trump, when he was president, uh, felt more at ease with dictators such as Vladimir Putin or um, the North Korean president rather than with West elected Western European leaders such as um, the former German Chancellor Angela Merkel. And well, we appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. As Russia's invasion of Ukraine approaches the two-year milestone, the difficult work of locating the thousands of Ukrainian children who've been forcibly transferred to Russia is at hand. VOA's Lori London spoke with Mikola Koleba, founder and CEO of Save Ukraine, a group working to rescue deported children and help rebuild their lives. So many lives have been lost, so much has been destroyed. And of course, one of the big things has been the children that Russia kidnapped. Your group is working to try to save them and bring them back. Do you have any statistics on how many children Russia has kidnapped since they started doing this? And are they continuing to do it? They are continuing to do it, kidnapping children from occupied territories and indoctrinating them. But the scale of this problem is very hard to evaluate. But we have official numbers of kidnapped children. It is almost 20,000 kids who have been abducted. And it is through the governmental data that children who have been identified. Real number is much higher. It is maybe 30, 40 or 50,000 children after full-scale invasion during these two years. But after first invasion 2014, it was dozens of thousand children that time. It is Ukrainian children, and many of them have been not only kidnapped, they are now Russian citizens, and many young adults who've been brainwashed, Russia instilled hatred towards Ukraine, they are fighting as a Russian soldiers now against Ukraine, and they are dying as a Russian soldiers. It is genocide, what Russia doing with Ukrainian children. How many have been returned overall? I know you're working very hard to do that. That must be a very difficult task. How many do you know of that have been returned and how have they been located? How difficult must it be? It's very difficult to find a child who been kidnapped and through the Save Ukraine rescue missions we returned 244 children and it is from almost 400 children who've been returned for this time. It is a government organization trying to return 
kids who have been abducted. What are you seeing, the trauma from them, their experience? What sorts of emotional recovery is needed? You know, it depends on the age. It depends on how long time child stayed in Russia or occupied territories. And trauma depends on this. And we have a special professionals in our programs. It is psychologists or therapists who assess how trauma is deep and they provide rehabilitation of these children. And last question, are you continuing to work to get more children out? And how do you go about that? How do you find them? How do you actually, even if you do find them, how do you get them out? The first to find and return is the most dangerous and complicated. We have technology, how to provide this research, how to find a child. And we have different technology. How we doing this, it's confidential, I can tell you, but second stage to return maybe it's most complicated because russia trying to block any rescue mission any return and it's very hard to return a child as you know it's a long way to come back if a child in crimea or in russia through belarus or through your european countries and you could be interrogated by fsb that's why we are carefully planning a route and extraction of any child from Russia territory. That's why I can tell you a lot about it. Mikola Koleba, founder and CEO of Save Ukraine. We thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage on Ukraine and news from around the world 24 hours a day at voanews.com and on social media. Just be sure to follow VOA News. On behalf of everyone at VOA, thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Rick Pantaleo.